Now, as we dive in the Word of God this morning, um, we as a church, as you saw the sermon slide, have been talking about what it means to follow Jesus uh, through the book of Mark. And today, what I want to talk about, because of what the text leads us, what this text brings us, is actually two vices that hinder us from following Christ. And those two vices are pride and prejudice. And thank you, Jane Austen, for the title of the sermon. Here in the account that Mark brings us today, you will see that there's your pride and prejudice that hinders you and also others from following Christ. So outline for today's message is pretty simple, actually. The first, we'll talk about what is your pride and prejudice that really hinders you and others from following Christ. We'll talk about both pride and prejudice. And secondly, what's its cure? What price are you willing to pay for so that you can really follow Christ as he commands us to be? I pray that this will be a time of sobering examination. And church, I, full disclosure here, as the Lord is patient with you, I hope you are patient with yourself. This is one of those which I'll be highly surprised. Man, I heard one sermon, pride and prejudice, nailed it. I don't have any struggle anymore. This will be something ongoing struggle for many of us. Many of you know I have my sister Joey and my seven-year-old nephew, Tim, staying with me. The other night, uh, Tim was sleeping, but I guess his legs were hurting, so he went to his mommy's room, to Joey's room, and in the middle of the night, Tim tells Joey, my legs are hurting, and Joey's half asleep already, so she's like, oh, maybe, maybe it's a growing pain, maybe you're growing fast, or maybe your legs are hurting, let's, let's go to bed, honey. So Tim's like, okay, they went to bed. Following morning, they wake up, and the first thing Tim tells Joey when he sees mommy, he's like, Mommy, do I look any different now? <laughs> Is my leg any longer now? Adorable. Yeah, we all know we don't grow overnight, isn't it? Uh, this will be the same thing. I hope that as you partake in the Word of God together, it will cause us to examine ourselves and reflect and repent, yet also be very gracious and patient to yourself. All right, let's dive in together. First, vice that hinders us from following Christ. First, pride that hinders us from fully participating in the mission of Jesus. The first account we see here in verse 30 through 36, if you have a word of God there, he gives, Jesus here gives us his second passion prediction. When I say passion prediction, which I mean by Jesus prophesying, hey, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed by the hands of men. Jesus gave that in chapter 831 in that area, and he gives that once again in this section. Look at verse 30. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But what's astonishing about his prophecy, his passion prediction, is not necessarily what Jesus said. Because disciples heard it already. But what is to come afterwards? While we don't know exactly how much time has passed after that, 
while Jesus is saying, hey, your master, your Lord, your king is going to reject it and killed by the hands of men, look what disciples are caught up with. Verse 33 and 34. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They kept quiet because deep down there, no, uh-oh, guilt has been charged. I was, while my master is saying I'm going to be denied, rejected, and be killed, I am caught up in debating about my greatness, this pride. See, desire for greatness, church, um, is something we admire and we desire. Just this past week, I don't know how much you watch, uh, but LeBron James, NBA basketball player, has become NBA's all-time leading scorer, surpassing 38,388 points previously held by Kareem, and the crowd cheered, MVP, MVP. Crowd erupted. And now, if some of you guys are thinking at this point, oh, wow, I actually cannot believe Jin is giving a sports illustration. <laughs> that ever happens? So let me might as well get it out of the way. Go birds. Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. I, so many greens, I had to say it. It's all downhill now. Okay, let me bring us all back here. But I hear after LeBron scored all-time leading scorer saying, oh, who's the greatest now? Who's the greatest of all-time GOAT discussion? It seems pretty still solid that everyone says, Michael Jordan, no one can start passage glory. But the debate about GOAT, greatest of all-time, happens all the time in sports world. Just a couple of months ago, when Argentina defeated France, Lionel Messi won the World Cup. Now everyone considered already to be one of the greatest. People say, now he sealed the deal. He's the greatest of all time. I mean, the world erupted, and people love discussing about who is the greatest. Now, when you're far removed from the circumstances, we say, that's awesome. We admire LeBron or whoever greatness it's going to come out of. We appreciate and admire and no one really loses sleep over that. Disciples don't argue, Jesus, I'm greater than you. They, they all they follow him. Yet, among your own circle. Now, disciples among themselves, among them peers. But actually, Jesus, we get that you're better. We admire you. But among us, actually, I'm better than you. All people, 12 circle. They are talking about how great I am. I'm just a little better than you. I'm, aren't I better? They're caught up in their pride. So let me take a deep dive today. How pride actually works in our lives. It's manifest, it's nature, and it's effect. So let's talk about how it manifests here. And I hope you get to examine yourself today, church. You might be like disciples. You say, I'm better than you, buddy. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. Sometimes pride manifests in the way. You just think you're so much better than others, in your circles especially. But there are so many ways it manifests. One example, I give many examples. Some of you, you must have the final word. You have to be in control at all circumstances. Some of you, 
you feel like you have to be the one who speaks the most insightful words. Some of us live for the hmm. We want that approval deep inside. Pride creeps in. Pride manifests in a way that makes you to double down actually when you need to apologize. Pride also justifies you. You say, oh, I'm only 30% wrong here. The other person is 70% wrong. So it's not my fault. I'm not going to apologize at all. And pride also manifests in a way that it causes you to pretend that you know what you're doing when all the people around you know that you got no idea what you're talking about. So it diminished your ability to see things very clearly because you have to be right at all costs. And pride manifests in a way that it normalizes self-exhortation and self-centeredness. These days in the media, social media especially, all I hear about is subscribe, like, and follow me. I feel like that's the normalized chant of our days. What about you? Let me continue your how it manifests. Pride also hinders you, your ability to extend grace. You say, don't they know better? I know so much better than that. Why do they do that? It also hinders your ability to receive love. Some of you struggle in that sense. If you are struggling with a superiority complex in pride, you say, of course, I'm great. Of course, they love me, duh. If inferiority complex, you say, no, 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 that's okay. Uh, Nobody really loves me. That's okay. I'm not worthy of that. It's that inward curve, the self-centeredness. Pride also manifests in a way that hinders you from really celebrating others for their success, whether it be somebody's promotion, purchasing a new house, engagement, marriage, a new birth, pride causes you, it manifests in a way that hinders you to really celebrate them, but just makes you think about yourself. When am I going to get a promotion? When am I going to buy a beach house? When am I going to be able to retire? When am I going to get married? When am I going to have a child? Pride has an ability to turn all things just toward you. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 10:4, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thought, there is no room for God. Do you know what that means? Your heart is just filled with you and yourself, that there is no room for God in your mind. So this sermon actually was in one sense really easy to create because I just had to think about myself. All the list comes out. On the other side, it's a hard sermon because I feel very exposed. And if you thus far, if you think about, if all, if all you thought about is, man, that person really needs to hear this sermon, what about you? <laughs> so, if you found yourself any of in this category, how pride manifests, think about this. Here, let's talk about its nature of the pride. Here, Disciples are like so blinded by it, all things. They almost 
don't have the ability to hear Jesus' second prediction. I'm going to lay down myself. I'm going to be rejected and be killed. But because they are caught in, I'm the great, you are the great, they are just completely blinded and they are in their own la-la land talking about their own greatness. So the nature of pride is that it's an appetite. The more you feed it, the more you taste it, you only want more. Once you taste somebody's applause, you only crave for more. The more and more you feed them monster, you will never be able to be satisfied. You only crave it more, it will grow more and more, and it will take you over. You will become the greatest narcissist if you feed them monster constantly. So in a sense, pride is like a drug, if I can call it that way. It gives you the momentary jolt. It makes you feel good. Oh, yeah, I'm great. But then in the end, you become the god of yourself in your own mind. It takes over you. It leaves you empty, and eventually, it will kill you. It will take you over. It never delivers what it seems to promise. That's the nature of pride. It feels good momentarily, but in the end, it leaves you empty, dry, and more lonely than ever before. See, one of the greatest problems in the nature of pride is that it's so easy to spot in others, so hard to see it in yourself. So, I mean, yeah, I'm like, as I think about this sermon, I'll give my example in a second. But like, how does the Lord, disciples are all caught up in talking about their own pride. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, chapter 8, the great sin tells this. I now come to the part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. The vice I'm talking about is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites. In comparison, it was through pride that the devil became devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as proud you are, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So pride. Disciples are debating about who's the greatest among themselves. And let's talk about its effect. What kind of effect? Don't you mistaken thinking that pride is only between you and God matter. Or what I mean by that, pride is also communal, unfortunately, which means you all have been victim of it. In your marriage, in your community, can I say that? In your church, in your workplace, you have been the victim of it. Yet not only that, you also have dispensed it. You also aggregated it because you are the victim of it, you are the extender of it. You have a victim and the dispenser of the pride. They create havoc, it wreaks havoc in everywhere you go. It hinders us from truly being able to participate in the mission of Christ. That Christ calls us to follow him, to lose ourselves, to serve the least. Pride hinders us in all that we do. 
See, what does Jesus call us here in this section? Jesus tells us in verse 36 that we should be concerned for the weakest and the most humble member of the community, typified by these little children. In receiving those who are weak and humble, they'll be receiving Jesus himself. That's what Jesus is teaching us. But rather than associating and ministering those to those who are humble, marginalized, weak, we are so busy associating ourselves with somebody who's a little bit more important than us, somebody who's a little bit richer than us, somebody who's a little bit more respected than us, perhaps. So church, what about you? Is that you? Do you have the tendency within you as well? Now, before I deliver us out of the deep pit that we are digging ourselves in right now, Let's talk about second vice that kills us. Second vice that not only hinders you but from others following Christ, which is prejudice. Look verse 38, the second section. He said, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. What's so telling about this second account is that, I mean, man, put yourself in the shoe, Charlton. You are at the place of exorcism. You see all the crazy things happening. But what disciples are upset is not the demons. Who's in the opposite team? Demons, these crazy demons that are taking over people. What disciples are so obsessed and caught up. Someone on the same team. They are delivering the demons out in the name of Jesus in the end. They are doing work of the Lord. But disciples, oh, they are not one of us. Oh, I'm bothered by this. This is not good. Jesus, I told them to stop because they are not one of our 12. We are the best clique among ourselves. They are all wrong. And Jesus tells them in verse 39 and 40, do not stop him, for whoever is not against us is for us. In the presence of this demon, what disciples are doing, they're busy drawing the internal lines of orthodoxy which, I mean, what is right and wrong, while others are drawing people into the kingdom of God. They're busy saying, this is my church, this is me, me, me. Oh, you're a little different than us, therefore you better stop all that. So the greatest casualty of all the wars and battles is not the war all You know, greatest battle, it's a civil war that usually causes the most havoc and most damage. You're fighting among yourselves. One of the most deadliest wars that we fought as a country, if not the deadliest, is internal battle. And that's what exactly disciples are doing. They are casting out demons in the, these people, are casting out demons in your name, they say. Yet they tell them to stop in verse 38 because they are not one among us. And Jesus is saying, no, no, don't stop them. Whoever is not against for us is for us. In other words, Jesus is saying, true enemies, demons, not them. But you're busy just having this civil war because they are just a little different than you. But isn't that how exactly prejudice works, church, when you think about it? When it is against, so we don't really get irked by someone who is far removed from us. But when someone is just within our reach, they are similar but little different, oh man, that irks us, doesn't it? What I mean by that, I mean, sure, we just talked a sports illustration. When Lionel Messi was considered now the greatest of all time, I'm like, yeah, that's great, Messi, good for you. I don't lose sleep over that. Of course he's better than me. Duh. But perhaps, if you know other soccer players, perhaps, I don't know. 
But perhaps there's another soccer player called Cristiano Ronaldo, another great soccer player. Uh, he always tells that he, I'm the greatest. He says that perhaps he might have lost sleep overnight over it because it's someone within their reach. You don't really lose sleep over Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, their incredible wealth, do you? They're far removed. We might have some prejudice against them, but you said those, they're just a little removed from us. But in South Korea, we have this proverb. I didn't make up. They're really, if you ask anybody in the street, they'll tell you this proverb. They know this proverb that says, if your cousin buys your property, you get a stomachache. <laughs> they're right in your reach. Oh, my cousin, they're just like me, but they buy property. Why not? Why not me? When it's someone who's near you in your emotional proximity, physical proximity, to the degree that you are near them, or you have so much prejudice against them, you lose sleep over them. In the end, pride and prejudice and jealousy are cousins to one another. It always, you always take them to the endless judgment court in your mind. Oh, I'm a little better than them. Oh, do they get this? Man, church, as I was preparing this sermon, I, I thought about a couple of men in my life. I remember when I was in Bible college and when I was in seminary, both Florida and Dallas days, there were a couple of men who were like three, four years older than me in, in college and also like five, six years older than me in seminary. They were more mature than me. That was obvious. And they the following. They were doing all the great work for the Lord. But I'm like, but they, uh, they, are, not, they are not that good. Look at me. I'm doing all this great ministry and all that. And usually my journal is my repentance log. I was trying to my journal entry as I journaled anything. Not a single entry. I was always right. They were wrong. So many prejudices in my mind. And even as I was preparing someone, I thought of them and I said, oh yeah, look at where they are now. Look at me now where I am. Pride and prejudice, comparison, envy, jealousy. It kills the team. It hinders others from participating in the mission of Jesus. We don't get irked by someone who's so far removed, but when there's someone or something that's quite similar to us, similar belief, similar lifestyle, similar clothes and emotional proximity, that irks us. Boy, doesn't it? We think the demon is really out there always working, but sometimes you have a demon within you called pride and prejudice that really hinders true mission of Jesus from following Christ. What is that for you? Let's see whether you remember this joke that I shared a year and a half ago. Yeah. A pastor was walking across a bridge one day, and there was a man on the edge of the bridge who was about to jump off the bridge. So the pastor says, don't jump. And the man says, why shouldn't I jump? The pastor said, you have so much to live for. The man says, like what? So the pastor says, well, are you religious or are you atheist? The man says, I'm religious. And the pastor says, that's, that's a good place to start. He said, are you Jewish or are you Christian? The man said, I'm Christian. The pastor said, I'm a Christian pastor too. Look, we have this hope already. Okay, you're Christian. Are you Catholic or are you Protestant? The man says, well, I'm Protestant. The pastor replies, I'm a Protestant pastor as well. That's great. He continues, are you Episcopalian or are you Baptist? The man says, I'm Baptist. It's amazing, pastor says. I'm a Baptist pastor. Are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of the Lord? The man said, I'm Baptist Church of the God. 
The pastor said, it's a miracle. It can't be any better. I'm Baptist Church of God as well, he said. Are you Baptist Church of God original or are you Baptist Church of God reformed? And the man said, I'm Baptist Church of God reformed. The pastor said, this must be providential of God because I'm a pastor of Baptist Church of God reformed as well, he said. So, are you Baptist Church of God reformed reformation of 1879? Or are you Baptist Church of God reformed reformation of 1915? And the man said, I'm Baptist Church of God reformed 1915. To which pastor said, die you heretic scum, and he pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> Just a tad bit difference. Irk them, irk him. That's my case as well. Believe it or not, this joke was shared to me during my ordination sermon a decade ago, a little over a decade ago. My pastor back then shared that. Jin, there are many people who are very similar but a little different. They will argue. But remember, you're on the same team, on the same mission. Lay down your prejudice and remember that to this day. Church, what is your pride that hinders you from following Christ, joining in his mission? What is your prejudice that stumbles others from truly following him? We have so much of that in our church as well, within me, within you. Now, now that they dug us in a deep in, let's get out of here. The cure for your pride and prejudice. The price you must be willing to pay to follow Jesus. Look verse 42 to 50. When you look at this next section here, church, it's pretty radical. As in like, whoa, what is happening? Like verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes on. You're like, whoa, what is going on here? Man, I might not have hands and legs and limbs. Whoa, 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 what is he talking about here? I don't think I can put it any better than Reverend Dr. Ken Hughes, who was my doctoral advisor and also the author of A Discipline of Godly Men. Regarding this passage, he says, what Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. The hand, foot, and eye encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizes what we do, foot where we go, and eye what we see. His logic is impeccable and compelling. It is better to clean up your fleeting life here through some healthy self-denial, then go bearing your sins to an unending Gehenna, hell, an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worms eternally gorge themselves on the refuse of your life. Any sacrifice, any discipline, any self-denial is worth it. Do you get that? What price are you willing to pay for the deadly sin and vice of your pride and prejudice that hinders you from participating in the missions of Christ, that hinders others from truly following Christ? What are you willing to do today, church? And that, as Ken Hughes said, it's not physical mutilation but spiritual mortification that begins from deep, deep repentance. Church, you cannot repent when you think you're always right. If you justify yourself constantly, I'm right. 
We just have no ability to be able to repent. And in Jesus' mind, the mark of a godly followers of Jesus is not the one who lacks in any deficiency. It's not the one who knows most knowledge, but the one who repents and follows Jesus at all cost by all means. What is God tugging in your heart today? What are you desperately holding on? What is the pride issue that God is revealing in your heart, Shelton? What Jesus is calling us is to humble ourselves, taking eyes off of our significance or insignificance, and join the mission of reaching out to the last and the least. And that begins from deep repentance. God, I am sorry. I should have extended apology when I doubled down. God, it created havoc in my marriage because of my pride. It created havoc in our community because of my prejudice. Civil war, there's no room for that. What is there for you? What is God calling you to repent today, church, as a body of Christ? And as you do that, so first, we shall have this spiritual mortification in the presence of God to truly follow him, to abandon this vice of pride and prejudice. And secondly, there is a clear call in this passage in both at the end of 37 and verse 41 to serve, the call to lose themselves and to serve others, serve the least do you remember what first passion prediction Jesus gives in chapter 831? Right after that, after Jesus says he's going to be killed and rejected, in verse 34 and 35, Jesus tells his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel will save it. They're clear call to lose yourself in following him. Same here, verse 37. Lose yourself in serving the least and the most vulnerable. Verse 37, welcome little children, the least of the community. 41, serve in the name of the Lord, this cup of water. The cure uh, for your pride and prejudice is not just focusing on pride and prejudice itself, but it is the cure is happening by really following Jesus by losing yourself and busy serving others. Why? Because really, while pride is bold and boastful, humility is shy and subtle. It forgets itself in busy serving others. It loses themselves in serving the least and the most vulnerable in all that they do. The cure for your pride and prejudice is not, oh, I'm not going to be prideful. I'm not going to be prideful. I'm not going to have prejudice. I'm not going to have prejudice. Love Jesus, follow him, serve others in all that you do. Once again, Louis says regarding humility, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. Probably all you think about him is that he took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Would you lose yourself in serving others, laying down yourself? It begins from that repentance, spiritual mortification in the mighty presence of God. Shelton, it is the deadly sin of my own pride and prejudice. But as you repent 
and busy in serving others. Where is our hope? Where do you get that motivation finally? What causes us to repent is being so moved by the measure of forgiveness extended to the degree that you know that you've wronged, to the degree that you owe, you know that you owe, you wronged that person, how much it took that person to forgive you, it will begin to change you and transform you. To the degree that you realize how much Jesus loved us, that he went to the cross for our sins, you will begin to experience a deep forgiveness. Oh, I have no room for pride. I was wretched. And Jesus died for me, really, for my pride. Not only for my past pride, not only for my future pride, but even right now in my present pride at this moment. I am so right in my mind. Jesus said, I see that you're proud, but I'm still going to lay down my life. I'm telling you to lose your life, I'll first lose my life for you, to redeem you. When following Jesus requires this hefty price that Jesus lays down in this passage, what Jesus is requiring of us is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification of humbling ourselves. And that repentance begins from really realizing that we are filled with pride and prejudice. Uh, what is that for you when pride sneaks up that gives a little bit of this momentary pleasure? Will you kill it? Will you say, God, I'm going to lose myself, not just thinking about my glory, my fame, my own rightness, but I'll serve others, lay down myself. And be very patient with yourself, children. You cannot just constantly beat yourself all the time, 24-7. That itself can be a pride, too. But Jesus died for you and bled for you, and our ultimate hope is that one day, May I dare to tell you, you will be liberated from yourself. You get a pleasure to live with yourself 24-7. You cannot divorce yourself. And sometimes it's really ugly to realize how ugly you are. But when our Lord comes back once again, our Savior who lost it all at the cross of Jesus Christ to redeem us from our self-centeredness, he will come back once again and we'll sing together to the glory of his name. There will be no more room for pride and prejudice We'll be one team, one body, one mission, focusing on the glory of God and not of ourselves. Will you lose yourself? What is that for you? Will you bow your head? Before I lead our closing prayer here, I want to give you a minute to kind of examine yourself. Oh, God, here you're telling your disciples, hey, I'm going to lay my life down. While I'm hearing that, I'm still busy thinking about whether I'm greatest or not. How would you kill that pride within us? Would you give us that humble, godly repentance in the presence of you as one body? Will you cause us to repent our pride and prejudice created havoc in our community, in our workplace, in our church, in our marriage, in all the relationships. But, oh, Lord, how beautiful community of God will be when we lay down ourselves and we abandon ourselves to be busy serving the lonely, marginalized, neglected in the name of Jesus. 
Oh, may we become a church who are so caught up for the glory of Christ, the reputation of his name, not our name. Jesus, only you are able. And we look forward to the glorious day where we can do that holistically. No longer there will be room for pride and prejudice, jealousy and envy. All we know is to praise you forever and evermore. May that day come soon, O Lord. Maranatha, really come soon, dear Lord Jesus. We turn our eyes on you. We anticipate the glorious day of heaven where all people of God, all different tongues and nations and tribes come together to sing glorious name of you and you only. Till that day, confront us, gently sustain us. In your name we pray, amen.